I'm David Farrell. Um, I'm a professor of politics at University College Dublin. You've been instrumental in moulding a, a new type of political discourse in this country. Um, can you tell us about some of your work on um, the Citizens' Assembly Constitutional Convention work? Yeah, I, I was uh, part of a group, uh, Jane Souter, um, Owen O'Malley, Elaine Byrne. There's been various other people at different stages also, so it's not, not just me, but we've been pushing this agenda since 2010 um, about the need for citizens' assemblies to bring regular citizens into the room and allow them some sort of role in discussing big policy questions. And what's been wonderful over the last decade is how the uh, successive Irish governments have gone ahead and set these things up. And tell me about some of the books that you've written as well, because you have um, a beautifully nerdy approach to electoral systems too, which is why we're going to mine your brain today for some uh, information on how our system works. Well, actually, the two things are connected. So I write a textbook, as you said, on electoral systems. And um, back in 2003, I got this email from a, a Canadian buddy saying, uh, David, you want to come to Vancouver to talk to some citizens about electoral systems? They're reading your textbook. And I knew nothing about what this was about. And that was my first entry into the world of citizens' assemblies. The British Columbia Citizens' Assembly was considering the question of whether to change the electoral system for, for British Columbia. They read my textbook uh, and they wanted me to come and be an expert witness. So I encountered it as a witness for the first time, turning up in this room, 160 regular citizens queuing up to get my autograph. Students, don't ask for your autograph for your textbook. Um, and had become, by the end of it, experts on electoral systems. So, suffice to say, you know your stuff. Um, and one of the things that is kind of broadly spoken about in Ireland is how our electoral system is really great, even though it's quite rare, um, that P or STV is a beautiful way to formulate uh, democratic choices. How would you characterise the system in relation to others? The system is pretty unique. Um, single transferable vote, there's only three countries that use it for their main elections, Ireland, Australia and Malta. Behind you there is a photograph of a ballot paper from one Australian election that shows you just how weird and wonderful the system can become. That's a tablecloth ballot paper. It's the size of a tablecloth. Um, so it's a, it's a system that gives voters maximum choice. That's the main feature. As we know, we can rank order voters in order of preference, as many as we might want to. There's no other electoral system that gives that degree of choice to voters, so it's very voter-friendly. Why do we have this system? Uh, in short, we were lab rats for the Brits. So um, it was a British invention, the single transferable vote, um, in the early 1900s. Other, as your, democracies were evolving across Europe, in various other cases, in Switzerland, in Belgium, in other countries, they, they practised new kinds of voting system, ver ver versions of proportional representation. Instead, for the British, what they decided to do was practice it on the colonies. And so it's no surprise that three former colonies, Australia, Malta, and Ireland, uh, end up using the system. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but there's no doubt that uh, in 1918, the British were seeing the single transferable vote as potentially a way to try and stem the rise of Sinn Féin. Hmm. And um, when it comes to like other systems, like we see... Um, the massive issues with kind of a lack of direct democracy in the US, for example, in the Electoral College, and then the first past the post stuff in in Britain. Um, how? Why is ours better than those kind of ones? I think ours, our system is better than those kind of ones because what those systems share in common is that they're non-proportional systems. 
us, um, the United States of America, Canada, and Britain are the prominent users. India is another one, all large countries, of course, that use first past the post. They use a non-proportional system, which is really unfair on smaller parties. It c turns politics into a binary game be between two big forces. It doesn't allow flexibility of choice. So Ireland is, we use single transferable vote, as we call it, but it is a form of proportional representation. And uh, right across Europe, virtually all the democracies across Europe use some variant of PR. So when it comes to our single transferable vote and when people um, are voting, hopefully in large numbers at the weekend, is it fair to say that the results will be the most representative of what people actually want, what they're voting for? Yes and no. So yes, in the sense that it is certainly fairer than in first past the post. Um, that if you are voting for the for the Green Party candidate, you have a much better prospect that that candidate is going to get elected than would be the case in the United Kingdom, where the Greens are lucky to pick up any seats, one seat perhaps. Um, but unfortunately, and this is where we start getting into the more nerdy stuff, um, our system is not as proportional as in other European democracies because our constituencies are too small. We should have larger consist constituencies. The larger your constituency, the more proportional it is and the fairer it is for smaller parties. I'll dig into that a little bit. I'm not sure what you mean by that. What's the advantage of having larger constituencies? Because we're often told that actually it sh things should be more local or democracy should be closer to the ground or to the people. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really important trade-off question. Um, the larger your constituency, uh, the further the politicians inevitably come from their voters because there's a geographical distance that's starting to grow. So you lose that degree of connection. And this is what we do really well, arguably perhaps a bit too well, the degree of connection between the politicians and the voters. But you have to trade that against um, if the constituency is too small, then the threshold that a small party needs to pass in order to win a seat is just that bit higher. So the Green Party needs to get that many more seats, that many more votes to win. So the smaller parties tend to do better in five-seat constituencies than in three-seat constituencies. Well, they do even better if it was a 10-seat or a 15-seat constituency. Right, I get you on that. Um, yeah, because we're often seeing the small parties fight for the last seat, for example. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of it now. If you're a first-time voter and you're walking into your polling station, what are you going to see and what is the task in front of you? It's a wonderful experience. I mean, I never forget my, my first election. It's such a great thing to celebrate this, this fact that we can walk into a polling station and get this wonderful multicolored ballot paper with the photographs of the candidates, with the pictures of the party logos and a pencil. And we go to a little quiet corner and we vote. And so the first thing you see is that ballot paper, which will be varying in length depending on how many seats, the bigger the constituency, the longer that ballot paper is going to be. So how does it work then? There's loads of discussion about the pros and cons of voting all the way down the ballot. Um, there's also loads of discussions about should you give the person you absolutely want to get in your number one. How does the system work in terms of voting down the ballot and preferential voting? So the, the bottom line is that the system is so, is so complex in terms of how votes translate into seats. Not necessarily complex for the voter, but complex in terms of the mechanics of it that to try and game it is just not worth your while. It's, you'd need to be a supercomputer to really try and find some way, and you really still wouldn't succeed. 
Um, so the best advice I always say if asked is vote for the person you, you like the most for whatever reason you like that person. It might be their policies. It might be because you like their constituency service. It might be because you like their gender. It could be any number of reasons that cause you as the voter to like one candidate over another. Vote for that candidate and vote all the way down the line. Vote as far as you can down the line. The, the best way to maximise the utility of your vote is to vote for as many candidates, to rank order as many candidates as you can possibly get away with. Why so? Because that means your vote potentially is still in play as the counts unfold. So that we have the wonderful experience on TV and radio in the 24, 48, God knows how many hours it'll follow, voting day, polling day, when the counts proceed and we're into count two and count three and count four. Well, if you've only rank ordered one candidate, then your vote is over at that point. So obviously the more you vote, the greater the chance that your ballot paper might might be the one that makes the difference in terms of uh, determining that last seat in that five-seat constituency. So getting into this now, a lot the, around the um, should you vote all the way down or not, there's been a lot of discussion uh, on that online and different pieces of um, information, some insightful, some a bit woolly, uh, circulating, especially on so- social media, about the pros and cons of voting all the way down the, ba- down the ballot. If you really dislike a certain candidate and you can't bring yourself to even put 12, 13, 14 beside their um, picture or logo and you absolutely don't want them to get in, should you leave them blank or should you give them a final preference or a very, very late preference? To be honest, I don't think it really matters at that stage. If you've managed to go all the way down, let's imagine there are 14 candidates on that ballot paper and it's that 14th one that you really do not want to see elected. Whether you vote that last 14th preference or leave it blank, at the end of the day, at that stage, really doesn't make any difference. You're you're down to the very end of the election at that stage. Okay, here's another um, scenario. So say there's a candidate I want to get elected. Like if I've identified someone in my constituency then I'm thinking I really want them to get in and they might have a good chance or a fighting chance by the polls or whatever the last election was but there's another candidate who I also like but who has far less of a chance and I probably think well chances are they'll be gone in the first or second count there's no way that they'll reach the quota should I give the person with little hope my first preference just to give them a first preference and then the person who I kind of also want to get in but has a better chance, my second, in the knowledge that the candidate with less of a chance will get knocked out early, so my second preference will go to the person who has a better fighting chance. This is where we get to the question of trying to game the system, and I, I always will say don't try to game it because, you know, you might think, and you might have good reason to think that because you've been reading the newspapers and following the opinion polls, that the, the scenario is exactly as you just outlined, but you really don't know. I mean, none of us know in advance ultimately what's going to happen on the day. And so you could find yourself kicking yourself later on that you voted for the person who really wasn't your first preference for the reason you just described. You've given them your number two instead, and suddenly for some reason they don't survive long enough and you haven't helped them. So I always say vote for the, the person that you really like the most for whatever reason, whatever determines what you mean by like. Give them your number one. That's, that's the safest way to make sure that you're, you're backing the horse that you really want. And if they get elected then, if they reach the quota, let's say, on the second, third, fourth count, or maybe even straight away, and you voted for them number one, is your vote over then? 
now we get into the nerdy stuff, which I always love. So if we're dealing with an, an elimination of a candidate, the weakest candidate, then your vote is definitely in play because they take all of the ballot papers and they transfer them to the remaining ones. But if you're dealing with a, um, a candidate who's been elected, there's no way, you will never know whether your vote will ever have been in play again. The advice I gave earlier on still applies because it's possible it still is in play, so voting down the line means that then it continues to be in play. But um, a candidate who gets elected has to have passed the threshold, the quota, the droop quota. Um, and only the only votes that are transferred, at least in the Irish version of this system, is the surplus of votes. But that means that you, as the voter for that candidate, you might your ballot paper might not be in that surplus that gets picked. You might be lower down the pile, and so that's the end of the election as far as your ballot paper is concerned. But we'll never know that. Going to get into the um, ins and outs of the surplus in the second, but there's a lot of talk about the quota and reaching the quota and all that kind of stuff. What is the quota and how is it determined? It's a Droop quota. It's named after a Mr. Droop, who was a statistician who came up with the formula. There are different formula that could be used, but Droop is the one that caught on. And it's simply, you look at the total valid vote, so the number of votes, not including spoiled votes, and you divide it by the number of seats plus one, and you add one to the total. So if it was a, we use it in the, we use this system for presidential elections, and that's the easiest way to describe it. So you want to get a candidate to be elected with 51% of the vote in a presidential election. Whoever gets 51% is elected, because it's a majority result, there's only one candidate that can win. So you take the total valid vote poll, you you divide it by number of seats, which is one, because it's a presidential election, plus one. So you divide it by two and you add one and you get 51. And as you increase the number of of seats in the constituency, then the size of the quota goes down. So in a three-seat constituency, the quota is that little bit lower. In a four-seat, it's that little bit lower. And that gets to the point I was saying earlier on, that the larger the constituency, which means the greater the number of seats in that constituency, the less votes that are needed for a small party to start picking up seats. Back to the preferences there, um, because it kind of chimes with candidates getting elected and trying to reach the quota and all that kind of stuff. If I vote for somebody, number one, and they get knocked out and my second preference then goes on to somebody who's still in the running, what if my second preference has also been knocked out? Where does my vote go? Then they look at your number three. So if, you've, if you rank ordered one, two, three, four, five, if I've understood the question correctly, and your first vote has now been used on the ballot paper, and uh, now they're transferring your, your ballot paper, but the number two candidate has been lock, knocked out, they will just go immediately to your number three. Okay, that clears that, that one up for me. Um, so you mentioned the surplus there, and uh, one of our listeners, Keith, asked on Twitter, how does the surplus distribution actually work? He says, I thought I knew, but there's been a few discussions the last few days that have made me unsure. Yeah, no, so we do a, a very simple way of doing it in Ireland. Where Ireland and Malta share this in common. So you've got your list of, uh, let's say there's the 14 candidates, and I'm probably going to lose myself in midway through this, but here goes. You've got your 14 candidates in this example. So you have 14 piles of ballot papers based on the number one votes. And can- candidate three has just been elected with a big surplus. Um, so now you have a very big pile for number three, but they can only transfer a certain amount because you can't have a ballot paper being used, you can't have a vote being used twice. It's a single vote that we have. So the number of votes that have been used to elect that number three candidate, 
that, that were needed to, to elect that, that number three candidate, that third candidate, must now stay. They can never be used again. So they can only take the surplus. So what you now need to do is look at, of those people who gave that, that candidate uh, their number ones, what do they do with their number twos? So you work out, you look at the total number of ballots that are against that candidate in the pile of the candidate, and you see where all the number twos are going for the remaining candidates in the race, but you can't transfer all of them, you can only transfer, transfer the surplus. So you, you, there's a complex formula that works out what is the proportion of the total number twos that are going from that candidate to the next candidate that you're allowed to transfer. So it's only a very small number. I'm, I think I'm confused. Yeah, it's, it'd be much easier if we could do it with drawings and pictures. <laughs> but ultimately, in the Irish version of this, you're only allowed to transfer surplus ballot papers. So it's a small pile that you take eventually from the top of the pile because they've all been randomly all sorted out and everything like that. There are other versions of this system where you take all of the ballot papers, but you divide them by a fraction. And that means every ballot paper is still in play. But in Ireland, it's only the, the lucky ones that are picked off the top. Well, how do you make sure you're one of those lucky ones? Because let's say if let's say the quota is five thousand, yeah. and candidate X gets six thousand, so a thousand of candidate X's votes have to be distributed. Yes. How do we know? Like, let, there could be a thousand that were at the top of the pile that were from one part of the constituency where the transfers would be going to one particular candidate, whereas there could be more in the pile that would be going to somebody else. How do we make sure that that's fair? Well, the, the argument of the, re, of the returning officers is, is it's fair because in the counting of all these votes, all the bo- boxes have been opened up from all over the place and ballot papers are being con- mixed up and everything like that. So you're randomizing from right across the geographical divide. And so ultimately what you end up with on this big pile, of course, it's many piles in reality, is a random selection. So if you pick those 1,000 off the top of that pile, then that's a, a, a reasonable um, randomization but the reality of course is as I said those other 5,000 ballots never get used again and that's a big weakness of our version of this system there are fixes the Scottish use our system for their um, local elections and they um, they use a more complex way which is a fairer way of transferring surpluses how do you ensure just for the crack of it let's say if you want your vote to be the little vote that could and to go in all sorts of different directions now we're getting back into the gaming, of course. But you know, and this is this would be naughty, right? But if you want to maximise the chance that your your ballot paper is going to be in play, then vote for no hope candidates, because they'll get knocked out. So your ballot paper will be used. Because if you knock out, if you eliminate a candidate because they're the weakest in terms of how many votes they got, then all those ballot papers get moved on. So you could you could start with weaker ones, and then you know at that some stage you're starting to be significant in terms of the stronger ones. But as I was saying earlier on, if there's a candidate you really, really like, you run the risk that by the time your vote preference goes to that candidate, they may have been eliminated. Mm. There's been, the way that this election has gone, there's been um, kind of different um, types of encouragement or motivations um, uh, on social media let's say in particular and because of the quote unquote Sinn Féin surge and because of what some people think that represents in terms of a broader surge to the left there's been this kind of um, you know clarion call or rally cry or whatever to transfer left what does transferring left really mean and how can you ensure that you're no matter who you vote for a leftist transfer would be in play it's a great question and, and my simple advice would be go to which candidate 
there's a great app uh, there's a great uh, website up on on it's on all the social media being run by a colleague out of the University of Limerick uh, Rory Costello um, which is designed to help you in that way because you know y- your your idea of what going left is might be different from my idea because we are all individuals and we have our our own particular views about different policy areas so something like wh- the, the website like which candidate gives you the possibility to answer a whole series of questions about where you stand on different policy areas and then it it contains all the information about where the candidates in your constituency are on those same policy areas so it'll match for you it'll say you're a 90 percent match with that candidate you're 70 percent with that you're 20 percent match with that candidate so you can work out what is the best route if you really want to vote on the basis of your left-wing policy preferences I don't think I've ever voted all the way down the ballot because there will be certain candidates where, you know, I just can't bring myself to put a number beside their faces <laughs> or the party logo or whatever it is. Am I doing myself a disservice by being so obstinate in that regard? In short, no, because I'm the same as you. And I mean, I know of people, and, and indeed in that case of the tablecloth election, we know from the voting data that we looked at that there were several hundred candidates on that ballot paper and there were a couple of people God love them who went all the way down so there are people who can do that I can't I mean the average voter in an Irish election we know from this, the research that's been done probably completes between three and five preferences and then gives up that's sort of the norm the average I probably in a, an, on a good day can bear to vote for about two thirds and then I probably give up myself so I don't follow my own advice on this one I think most of us don't what do you think is the sweet spot um, for let's say if there's 12 candidates on a ballot what do you think is the sweet spot to ensure your vote is maximised that all of the juice is squeezed out of your vote in terms of the number of people you vote for it's a difficult one to answer uh, concretely because the sweet spot will have changed over time so in earlier decades when we had less parties and less candidates the sweet spot would have been less. You wouldn't have needed quite so many because you wouldn't have had so many counts. But as we've been seeing in recent elections, the numbers of counts are going up and up and up. And so that sweet spot has been extended for that reason. So, you know, I, I, I would have go, gone on a sort of rule of thumb that I tried to complete about two-thirds. And I my guess would be it'd be, it'd be about there. When we consider um, how there's no doubt that the kind of political binary of um, Irish electoral politics and party politics, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, has been in decline for um, decades, actually, um, when you look at the percentage of the combined vote that they're getting. Yet we hear a lot um, in the run-up to every general election about candidates who are transfer-friendly mm. and candidates that may not get a huge first-preference vote but then can end up leapfrogging up through the ranks. What does that mean and what do you think um, a transfer-friendly candidate or party is? Well, I mean, certainly we know of the prominent example of Sinn Féin, you know, that, that there tends to be a, a lack of... Um, they, they tend to be sort of Marmite-like, um, and so for that reason they tend to be more transfer-toxic historically. Of course, this election could see something different. I don't know. So that there's less of a tendency for people to be willing to give a Sinn Féin candidate uh, a preference than might be the case with other parties. I think the Greens definitely are transfer-friendly. I think in this election, they probably are the most transfer-friendly party of all for any number of reasons. So I, th- I think that probably is the, is the main reason. Um, 
But in terms of the sort of Catherine Sapone kind of model that we saw in the last election of the candidate who doesn't do so well in count one but just hangs in by their fingernails right to the end and just squeaks through, to some extent that's, to a large extent of course, that's because they're transfer friendly. She would, was clearly transfer friendly in her constituency, no doubt. But to some extent it's just pure luck. And it gets back to the question of which ballot papers were at the top of a pile when a surplus was being transferred. And if you had had a, on a different day a different pile of papers, you wouldn't have necessarily been still in the running. So there's a lot of luck when it gets down to it, particularly on narrow accounts. Uh, is that luck fair? No. No. This is one of the weaknesses of our system. It's a little known fact that if we had gone for computerized uh, voting, I wasn't in Ireland at the time, but I really wished it had gone through. Um, they would have been able to use the computers then in a way that we can't do with hand counting to bring in a much fairer system for surplus uh, transfer. We were talking about it earlier on. I mentioned Scotland. Scotland used computers for their counts. And as a result, all ballot papers are in play, not just the small amount at the top of the pile. They fractionalise them and they keep, keep them in play. And if, for those who want to check it out, just Google Weighted Inclusive Gregory. It's a mouthful. but there's What a Weighted Inclusive Gregory? Yes. We use the Gregory method, as it's called, named after Mr. Gregory, uh, for, our, for our Shannon elections, where it's a version of this, a simple version. And then there have been different, the Australians use a thing called Inclusive Gregory. Well, the Scots have gone one step further, Weighted Inclusive Gregory. And for reasons I would not dare to bore you with now, it does produce less chance of luck. It just produces a fairer outcome all around. Can you please bore me with those details? Oh, God, no. I mean, basically, the gist of it is that um, every... In the, in the Gregory method, the essence of the Gregory method is that you use, in this example of the candidate who has now won in the first count with a big surplus, you would transfer all of those ballots, but you'd fractionalise it down to what it would be if you were only transferring the surplus ballot papers, mm. right? The next count, then, if somebody's been elected... You're, you're only transferring the you're, you're only transferring the ballot papers that have emerged from the previous count. You're not looking at the ballot papers that are in the piles at a later stage, for reasons to do with um, the the value of the ballot paper changing once you add a fraction to it, once you weight it in a certain way. Weighted inclusive Gregory gets around that. It means that all ballot papers at all stages are all in play, and so it means that there is no danger that you might be the unfortunate whose ballot paper just ends at the bottom of a pile that nobody ever gets to. And uh, there's really good Google, Google summaries of this, very accurate summaries that can explain it with all the formulae and everything, but it's by far the better system. So finally, let's talk about demographics because we know that the voter turnout has, um, and the type of voter turnout has a huge impact on the results of elections and referenda and so on. Um, what is youth turnout like in Ireland in general elections? We don't know for certain. Uh, we don't know for certain because um, we have never really, not at least since 2002, had the funding to do a proper election study, which is the bane of our lives in the political science community. It may not matter uh, in other wider circles, but Ireland is one of the few democracies in Europe where there's no audit of the election. We call it an election study. Uh, and in a, a proper election study would allow us to answer questions like that. So we can only go on the basis of the small amounts of survey data that we are able to gather, and it's very small and very imperfect. Um, but the gist of the answer 
to your sto- to your question is younger voters the world over tend to be less inclined to vote um, and one of the reasons why turnout is declining the world over is because successive generations of younger citizens when they reach the age of majority to vote 18 are less inclined than their previous the previous cohort to vote and over time this mounts and so this is why turnout is going down and this is one of the arguments in favor of votes at 16 this is why i'm among those who would say we sh- we need to do that because you're catching people at an earlier stage and they're more inclined if they're still in school and learning more about democracy and they've been encouraged to vote on the first time they're more inclined to continue to vote and we know this from austria and other cases which have introduced votes at 16 so um, Ireland is no different from any, anywhere else. Younger citizens are just less inclined to vote. And if you don't vote on the first election, the likelihood is you won't vote in the second either. Mm. And finally, what do you do on count day? Oh, geez, on count day, well, I'm, I'm one of uh, a large number of very sad political scientists who get locked away in the bowels of RTE, waiting to be called up in front of a camera or a mic for five minutes to talk about it. Um, so I spend much of my count day on my mobile phone stuck in some godforsaken room in RTE trying to track what's going on. And uh, just one more thing, my Columbo uh, question. Um, what do you make of this election campaign? Like from a political science perspective, uh, what issues has it thrown up for you or what observations have you made about it? I think it shows that uh, where we are seeing in Ireland what we're seeing elsewhere, which is we're seeing the rise of populism. Uh, and most of most of it has manifested itself in terms of a right-wing populism and god help us that could come here at some stage but not yet thank goodness um, what we're seeing is a version of it the left-wing populism and it's it's Sinn Féin that are the beneficiaries of this that they are picking up uh, the votes of those people who feel left behind by the system and are looking for change and they need to find somewhere where they can really express this and they're expressing it through Sinn Féin David, thank you so much for having the chats with us. I really appreciate it. I think that's going to be really fascinating and informative for everybody listening. Do you have any final words of advice? Vote. Simple as. Thank you very much. Thank you.